Welcome to Bow Talks, a podcast by Banking on Women, which is a student society at the University of Melbourne. We are dedicated to empowering, educating and encouraging our members in the financial and professional services industries. Bow would like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulon Nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land, on which we will be recording this podcast on. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to our final episode for the semester from Botox. As we bid adieu to this semester's podcast journey, we can't help but reflect on the different facets of the business industry we've explored together. From dwelling into the intriguing careers within institutional banks to tracing the unconventional career paths that ultimately found their destination in finance, We've uncovered a spectrum of stories. We've also witnessed journeys from pursuing a Juris Doctor after a Commerce degree to gaining invaluable insights into the multifaceted world of finance. We even ventured into uncharted territory within um, our mini-podcast series featuring three of investment analysts from Unisuper. And finally, from discussing the transformative experience of going on exchange to the captivating transformation from student to startup founder, it's been a roller coaster of knowledge. But fear not, for this final episode, Banking on Trends, we promise to bring you a great depth of insights into the ever-evolving finance world. So join us as we navigate into the finance universe with our special guest today, Corporate Finance Director at 87 Advisory, Haynes D'Souza. And some of you may recognize him as the brilliant mind behind your tutorials at CFDM or Entrepreneurial Finance courses at Melbourne Uni. So um, without further ado, let's give him our welcome and let's dive headfirst into this episode's first financial revelation. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm uh, so so happy to be here and, and glad to have this conversation. Awesome. Well, um, excited to hear our first headline for the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the last quarter the last few weeks have been monumental for capital markets and and i think the biggest story is probably the the inverted yield curve that that's happening in capital markets right now you know so what is the inverted yield curve the inverted yield curve is basically a a visual representation of interest rates um for u.s government debt so typically you know to to borrow to lend money to the u.s government um, you know, you, you have a higher interest rate for longer periods, you know, for 30 years, 10 years. It, it costs a lot more compared to short term, which is like three months or, you know, one month. And the reason being is because when you lend, you know, a government or someone money over the long term, it's more risky. And so there are high interest rates. And that's what typically happens. But what we have now is that curve has inverted. So what does that mean? It means that the interest rate on short term debt to the U.S. government is a lot higher than long-term debt. And, and to put this in context, this, is, this doesn't really happen very often. This, this happens very rarely. In the last 50 years, it's only happened five or six times. And it's unprecedented. And every single time it's happened, it's triggered a recession. And so I, this is maybe a good place to start because I think it's the most important thing in capital markets right now, you know, besides all the geopolitical things that are happening in the Middle East. But yeah, but, you know, the inverted yield curve is fundamental to capital markets and the way the economy works and, and the bond market and the share market. So I think that's probably a good place to start. Awesome. So um, what do you think are the factors contributing to an inverted yield curve? And as you said, the inverted yield curve is probably a reliable predictor of a recession. So what would be the global factors that could potentially get affected um, if we were to go into a recession? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've sort of described what the yield curve is. It's when, you know, capital is more expensive in the short term compared to long term. And it reflects, you know, fear. You know, yields and bond prices have an inverse relationship. So if yields go up, prices go down and vice versa. And what's basically happening now is there is such an attractive um, yield on long-term U.S. debt. A lot of investors are thinking, well, 
do I want to invest in the share market or do I want to, you know, lend the US government and get like five, six percent back, you know, for 30 years guaranteed? And so the a lot of capital has been moved away from riskier assets and going into to safer assets. And that's typically when you see the share prices, you know, globally sort of pull back as investors pull money away from the share market and more into US treasuries. So that, that's sort of the mechanics of, of how it works. In terms of the flow on implications of a, a high yield curve, it, it typically, you know, signals that a recession is about to happen because of short-term fear in the economy. Now, this has happened, you know, like I said, five, six times in the last 50 years. And every single time it's predicted a recession, except now. So what I'm really curious about and what I think everyone's really interested in is, are we about to come into another recession? You know, we, we see a lot of the um, interest rate reserve banks and, and federal governors basically saying, quote unquote, we want to get a soft landing, which means that we want to, you know, increase interest rates and make sure the economy grows steadily. But history and data proves otherwise. That over the last 50 years, when you've had negative yield curves, you get a serious recession. In terms of the factors, you know, causing a negative yield curve, I guess, you know, it, it's a function of monetary policy. It's a function of inflation. It's also a function of like um, sentiment and expectations. So when, you know, short term interest rates are really, really high right now, and that's why the yield is sort of downward sloping because the short term yields are really high. If yields are really high, what does that mean? It means bond prices are very, very low right now. The reason why bond prices are pretty low right now could be because people are buying long dated bonds, you know, 10 year bonds, 30 year bonds, more safer assets. You know, some people might be putting their capital into other assets, um, driving that yield curve. So that's probably one of the main factors causing the curve. Um, in, in terms of, you know, like I said, the impact, you know, it, it's wide ranging. The, the US, you know, yield curve forms a key component of WAC in a weighted average cost of capital that we teach in class all the time, which is, you know, a discount rate. So anytime you're pricing a security or you're pricing an asset, the discount rate is a critical component to value something. And as the discount rate increases, you know, the, the asset price in today's dollars it decreases. And so there's that relationship that you have to think about. And so when fund managers and investors are now doing NPVs and discounted cash flows and they're using this really high discount rate, guess what happens to the valuation and, and prices um, right now? They sort of go down. And and we see that happening a lot, you know, because rising yields, rising whack results in falling prices, lowering valuations, and that has a flow-on impact on the capital markets as well. So we're, we're at this really interesting time in, in markets right now where you've got something that's rarely happened. Um, and all the indicators and the signals point to a recession. And, you know, what, what is a recession? A recession, a recession is two consecutive quarters of economic contraction, right? And so that has implications on jobs, has implications on um, employment rate, interest rates, um, trade and FX as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, and asset pricing, capital markets, inflation, interest rates, the, the yield curve affects absolutely everything. I'm curious to know how the people have reacted to the inverted yield curve. So let's talk about um, the US Fed's reaction and also how different market participants have taken the yield, like inverted yield curve to be. Sure. So the yield curve is a market-based mechanism, right? So the Fed can't really do too much to directly participate and, and influence the rate. Um, they can enter the market and be a buyer, buyer of or seller of US government bonds, but that's slightly separate and we'll leave that conversation to a side for a minute. But the bond market itself is, is just like any other market. There are buyers and sellers and the implications of an inverted yield curve is that, you know, people are well, saying, well, hang on a minute, the, the curve is inverted. It's a reflection of increasing fear and bearishness in the market. <coughs> so people are reevaluating their, their risk appetite. You know, if you know 
that the yield curve is negative. And if you know that every time it's negative, there's been a recession, how do you think that impacts your investing strategy? How do you think that impacts your risk appetite? It's going to decrease it. And so we see a lot of fund managers and CFOs and, uh, you know, in an area that I'm, I'm very involved in, VC, looking to say, you know, how can I position myself to take advantage of, you know, potentially a recession coming up? Coming up? How, how can I change my portfolios to, to account for this? Um, so so that, that's, a, that's a big consideration. Um, so, you know, if, if you're managing capital for yourself, for other people, or um, you've got a superannuation, you've got a portfolio of shares, you know, really think about if the share market does, you know, correct, you know, more than 10, 20, 30% um, in the next six months, what moves can I make today to, to take advantage of that? So maybe getting into less riskier assets, maybe taking on securities that have a less beta or a negative beta or negatively correlated assets. Um, maybe looking into hedging, into defensive yeah. securities like gold and commodities. So those are how, you know, those different ways that people are looking to protect themselves against the negative yield. In that case, what industries or sectors in your opinion, should like literally have their eyes peeled for this upcoming or current inverted yield curve? Like what industries do you think will be the most vulnerable in this case? Yeah, so like short-term US government debt is paying a really good rate right now. So I don't know if I showed this in, in class the other day, but you could lend money to the US government for six months and get a really good rate, yeah. you know, probably a better rate than... You know, a, a lot of like, you know, returns on a share market can, can give you for six months. And, and that's virtually guaranteed. You're lending to the US government. It's effectively risk-free. So that's a good place to, to, to invest some capital. A second good place to think about is gold. Um, you know, gold is seen to be as a safe commodity and, and has volatility picks up, as fear picks up, people tend to look to gold. A third asset class is potentially the US dollar. You know, the US dollar, similar to gold, has historically been a, a safe commodity, a safe foreign currency. And, and we've seen that data. If you look at the price of gold, you look at the price of US dollars, um, they, they've both gone up. You know, So the, the evidence is there in the data that people are thinking this way. They are looking to de-risk and looking for safer assets. Um, however, and this is a big however, if you speak to, let's say, the... Um, Jerome Powell, the the Federal Reserve Chairman, yeah. you know, talks a lot about let's having a hitting a soft landing, and what does that mean? It means like he acknowledges there's a negative yield curve, but he wants the economy to to grow um, steadily, cut inflation, but still keep employment really high, and keep the economy really strong. So that's effectively his soft landing, where you you want to control inflation because remember we had some considerable inflation concerns in the last six months. Inflation was quite high. And when inflation was high, he increased interest rates. So what happens when interest rates are really high? You slow economic growth. His whole thing was, look, we want to cut down inflation. That's priority number one. But we don't want to kill the economy. So we want to get a soft landing. Now, that's what they would say. But the data says, well, hang on a minute. Yes, you want to have a soft landing. But look at the negative yield curve. The negative yield curve points to quite a considerable recession. So that's what the data is showing. Whether it happens or not, we'll have to, to wait and see. But those three things that I mentioned earlier, you know, short-term U.S. government debt, the U.S. dollar, and lastly gold, are three things people can have a look at to, to help mitigate against this risk. Awesome. So um, apart from that, as we mentioned before, how the Fed pretty much is um, like they wouldn't really have a power and they would not be able to sort of intervene in this situation. But do you think there could be any policy interventions that we could bring into place to mitigate the overall impact of an inverted yield curve? Yeah. So in terms of policy interventions, you know, there's the, the fiscal policy and there's monetary policy. In, in terms of fiscal policy, so government policy, I think the their ability to impact the yield curve is is quite limited um, in terms of government policy. You know, the U.S. government needs to borrow money, and when they need to borrow money, you know, there are lenders that lend their money. Yeah. You know, they they could adjust the amount that they borrow, but that's an unlikely 
unlikely case given the amount of capital the US government needs. And so the US government in terms of budgetary policy can't really do all that much without sort of spooking the markets. That's number one. Number two, in terms of um, like monetary uh, and fiscal policy. So in terms of like the, the Federal Reserve, you know, they can get involved in the bond market. They have done so previously where they buy or sell US government debt. However, they've only tended to do this in really exceptional circumstances. So think the global financial crisis, think quantitative easing. Um, you know, those are very exceptional circumstances. I don't think we are in that environment just yet. So I think in the short term, the answer is not much. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see you know, how this washes out. Uh, but in terms of monetary policy and budgetary policy, I, I think it's too early to say just yet what the options are. All righty. Thank you for that um, really in-depth insight into probably one of the biggest current finance highlights that we will continue to talk on for some time, at least going forward. Now let's move on to the second headline highlight for this episode um this is actually a we will now be embarking on a story and a journey through one of the world's most complex and i'd say enduring conflicts um that's been um grabbing international attention for decades um it's been a story of power politics and most of all the innocent people so it's obviously none other than the middle eastern conflict so let's just give a bit of an intro into what's happening in the Middle East. What's it's like? Let's walk through its current state. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, I, I think I, I I was shocked, as, you know, as as much as everyone else when you know we saw the footage on on the telly and oh, social yeah. media on what um, you know is happening in the Middle East with Israel, Gaza, and, and Hamas right now, and you know it's it's such a tragic human toll and, and loss of life and. You know, I, I remember, you know, waking up on the morning and, and, and looking at social media and, and seeing some absolutely horrific things and, you know, thinking, well, you know, like my heart goes out to, to all of the, the victims, the family that are there. You know, I actually grew up in the Middle East. I lived in Dubai for eight years. And so, you know, I, I kind of know what the culture is like and, and how tense the the socio-political, the geopolitical, the religious, you know, tensions are. And this is a conflict, you know, that, spans hundreds of years, um, if not longer. Um, and, and it's not just geopolitical, it's religious, it's territorial. Um, so it, it cuts deep. And, 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 you know, what's happening right now is, you know, it's such an extreme tragedy that, you know, is that goes beyond words. But, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, how, how does that impact you know, sort of capital markets away from the, you know, away from the human tragedy for a second, you know, how, yeah. how does that impact capital markets and, and what does that mean from a risk and return perspective? I think that's something that, you know, would be an interesting discussion to, yeah. to, to see, you know, what, what can, how, how do we think that this conflict will impact share markets and capital markets um, as, as well and, and what some of the, the responses will be from, you know, other governments and, and non-state actors? Yeah. I think it's always just it takes a human toll on yourself as well, just because a very humanitarian crisis like this um, sort of pushes you to focus on the humanitarian aspect. But I think um, deep down, there's, it's prone to potential impact on the commodities market, share market, and also um, something that could potentially follow inflation. So let's first yeah. of all touch on, um, like you mentioned before in the introduction, let's first of all touch on um, the impact this could have on commodities. So obviously, um, especially with regards to Middle East, um, they hold, um, basically they are, are the origin of key commodities such as oil and natural gas. So um, what are the broader implications for the global energy market following the Middle Eastern conflict? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when we look, when we try to answer this question and when I try to think about what's the impact of this this crisis on capital markets, it's it's best to look at history and, and it's best to look at like, have there been 
other instances like this before? And if so, how has the capital markets and share markets reacted? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, we have had cases like this in the past. You know, in, in 1973, we had the Yom Kippur conflict, um, you know, had tensions in the 1990s. And so unfortunately, you know, we, we do have historical data points to, to, to have a look at. There are, you know, folks that say that this one is a little bit different in, in that the, the casualties and, and just the, the nature of the, the, the barbaric conflict is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we all have seen some footage to, you know, to give some weight to that. But if we look at what's happened in the past, you know, specifically in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we see that these conflicts, particularly between Israel and Palestine, have had quite a short-term impact on oil prices. And that might be a little surprising. You would think that, you know, the Middle East conflict will have a long-term structural impact on commodity prices, but the, the evidence doesn't really show that. And the reason, I believe, is two, twofold. Number one, a vast majority of oil does not come from that area, you know, um, from Israel and Palestine specifically. Yeah. It's from their neighbours. And so... In, in previous instances, the, the Middle East conflict has usually been isolated to Israel and Palestine, and it has not escalated to neighbouring countries like Saudi Arabia, you know, Lebanon, Syria, and some of the Baltic states. So that's, that's number one. Number two, the, the, the US has been quite careful in making sure that the violence has been contained um, and sanctions have not been placed on other oil producing countries. So what does that mean now? So Iran, for example, produces, you know, a fair amount of oil. Right now, there aren't any restrictions on um, or or sanctions on oil production in Iran right now. But if that were to change, then we would see quite a significant um, increase in commodity prices. So that, that's some sort of historical context. So, you know, number one, if the conflict escalates and broadens, you know, in, in the wider region, you know, that, that's a big sort of, you know, red flag. Yeah. Um, the second thing is if we start to put economic sanctions on key oil-producing states, then that becomes another risk factor in terms of commodity prices. Now, there's there's a massive, you know, um, humanitarian aid program that's happening and, uh, you know, massive, like, crisis um, of refugees that are happening you know and and that's sort of main priority of resolving that but the second and third order impacts on on capital markets are also worth sort of discussing as well yeah apart from just oil and natural gas what role do middle eastern countries play in the global supply chain of various other commodities and how do you think this conflict as a whole has disrupted these supply chains yeah absolutely so like you said oil and gas two of the main commodities but one i'd probably think about which doesn't really get discussed is global shipping chain uh, global shipping channels right so the middle east has the suez canal which is in egypt which is one of the biggest, you know, shipping channels in the world. It controls a significant proportion of global trade, everything going from the US to Europe and then down south through Egypt into Hong Kong and Asia. That's number one. And then we also have the Strait of Hormuz, which is based um, between the UAE and uh, I believe Iran. So those are two really important, like important shipping, you know, channels and they, they, account for a significant proportion of global trade if the tension escalates if this becomes not just a israel-palestine issue but a, a, a glo- like a wider regional middle east conflict then we see not just commodity prices increasing right oil and gas but we might also see disruptions to supply chains yeah. because of the bottlenecks caused by these two ports now for all, you know, in, in mid-October in 2023 right now, you know, there is no science to suggest that the conflict has, um, you know, widened to, to the bigger the region. But right now, it seems to be an Israel, you know, Gaza situation. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who's to say that Israel might not, you know, turn their attention to Iran, for example, who's historically been an adversary of Israel. And then if if Iran gets involved, then who's to say that, you know, Lebanon won't get involved because, you know, they've been, um, 
you know, in an alliance for some time. And then, you know, Saudi Arabia might get involved as well. So there's, it, it could escalate very, very quickly. Um, obviously hoping it, it doesn't. But if it does, I'd be looking very closely at oil prices. I'd also be looking very closely at supply chains. Historically, this really hasn't happened. And so the conflict has been quite isolated. And, and therefore, you know, oil prices haven't gone up over the long term. Alrighty, that yeah, that's a lot to take in. But moving on from there, so we'll now divert from the commodities market to the share market. How have um the Middle Eastern conflicts historically influenced global stock markets? And just let's just um give a bit of your like an elaboration into any notable trends or patterns to consider within the share market. Sure, I think before we look at the share market, we might have to take a step back and, and think about inflation for a second. Yeah. Because the, the way this works is conflict, especially in the Middle East, um, will impact commodity prices, which then infects it, you know, changes inflation, which then impacts interest rates, which then has a impact on capital markets. So let, let's go through each step at a time. Yeah. So if you have a conflict in a region that's producing a key commodity, so in this case, oil and gas, and hypothetically the, the war escalates and we have a a, an extrapolated, a drawn-out conflict, what we'd expect to see is that oil prices would go up. Not just oil prices, but um, LNG, liquid, um, liquid gas prices as well. So we've seen that happen in the last couple of weeks, but I think there might be a lot more to come if the, the conflict escalates. So that's commodity prices going up. How does that impact inflation? So The thing about inflation is there are two types of inflation. There is core inflation and non-core inflation. So core inflation is basically the prices of goods and services that, you know, you use every single day, essentials like groceries, um, predominantly groceries, um, you know, basic sort of um, goods and services as well. And then you've got non-core, which are more like discretionary spending. Um, The thing about oil and commodities is that it affects everything. You know, from the price of bread to healthcare to, you know, filling up your car to, you know, just about everything. Yeah. Uh, and so it has a pervasive impact on the economy. So oil prices goes up, it impacts both core inflation and non-core inflation. And the reason I'm bringing up these two separate parts of inflation is because the Reserve Bank and, you know, interest rate policymakers look at core inflation when setting interest rates. You know, they, they, they look at non-core in the background, but core targeting core inflation, making sure the prices of goods and services that you and I both use every single day are controlled um, within a tight range. So that core inflation is, is impacted by all prices. And so the price of milk and bread and, 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 you know, cereals will go up. So how does that impact interest rates? Interest rates will go up. Yeah. Um, in order to get inflation within their targeted range. And so what's the impact on the share market? Well, if interest rates go up, that puts a negative um, you know, pressure on the share market. So typically, as interest rates go up, you will see share prices go down. Think of it like almost a drag on, on the share market. You know, the, in, instead of investing in the share market, you can um, lend money and get a high, and you can just put in a term deposit, you can lend money and get a higher rate. So that is typically the economic flow of this crisis on, on the share market. In terms of historicals and what actually happens on the share market, I think it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You will see different sectors of the econ- of the share market like behaving differently. Yeah. So, for example, you'll see probably you know defense makers, um, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, do quite well in in these sort of conflicts. Um, and then you know you you might have to to think about you know if, if you want to um, be in that position or how do you adjust your portfolio to to account for that. Um, but. But yeah, I, I guess it depends on you know what I said before. Does this conflict escalate? Does this conflict yeah. go from an Israel-Palestine to a regional conflict? You know, and then the second order impact is well, in, in terms of oil prices. Like if we look at the biggest oil producers in the world, it's Saudi Arabia, it's Russia, it's um, the UAE. If 
you, you know, Iran, the UAE and Saudi Arabia decide to not do anything, right? Not increasing their supply. Um, a lot of the the supply burden then falls on Russia, Russia and, yeah. on, on some of the Balkan states. The, the There's a really good report um, from IEA.org. It's the international sort of oil um, uh, regulator, and, and, and they produce some really good reports um, on top of OPEC as well. And you can see that Saudi Arabia has a lot of spare capacity, right, to produce more oil if they need to. But I sense geopolitically, like, if they are reluctant to do that because they don't want to be seen as you know, aiding the Israelis or profiteering from the crisis. So I think a lot of the burden to produce extra oil will fall on Russia. And, you know, let's see let's see how that plays out, you know, because there's another conflict that Russia is in right now, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it becomes very, it becomes a very complicated issue. Yeah. Um, going back up a few steps regarding inflation, I'm curious to know, are central banks responding to the potentially, uh, potential inflationary pressures? Uh, because that's kind of like, well, not the grassroots level costs per se, but um, it could potentially lead to um, other dire consequences. So any yeah. Um, yeah, responses from the central banks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the thing about inflation is that it's very sticky. Yeah. It, it, it's, like, um, it's like getting a, a scuff on your shoe. Easy to get, but really hard to remove. Yeah. I'll give you a really good example of inflation. In the 1970s in the US, inflation went up to like 12, 13%. And they tried everything. The only thing that worked to get inflation down was to increase interest rates massively. The reason why inflation is so sticky, and I promise I'll answer your question in a second, yeah. but the, the reason inflation is so sticky is because there's a thing called inflation inertia, which I'm sure you've you've learned about in, in economics. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that the prices tomorrow are a function of prices today, yeah. and, and so they can be quite sticky. The second reason is is about inflation expectations. You know, we tend to price things today based on our expectations tomorrow, whether it's, you know, pricing you know, labor contracts, pricing products of goods and services. And so inflation is very difficult to control. And so as soon as inflation tends to spike up, you know, the Reserve Bank and, and the Fed are, are very, very careful to bring it down very quickly. And history shows, especially in the US in, in the 70s and 80s, what the impact of really high out-of-control inflation can do. Let's apply it to today. How does that impact today's you know capital markets? So right now, the federal funds rate, so the, the US interest rate is 5.5%. Mm -hmm. And the Australian interest rate or cash rate is 4.1. In Australia, it's been 4.1 for about, I think, four months, you know, as of October. So it's been quite quite steady. And the general commentary when you read their, their minutes and their reports are basically saying, let's just wait and see. Let's wait and see what happens. So let's see what um, unemployment looks like. You know, if unemployment levels are quite low in both countries, historically low, but if unemployment, you know, um, picks up, then there might be a, a reason to cut interest rates. So sort of a bit of background on this, the last sort of six months, we've had really high inflation in, in the US and Australia. Yeah. And had really high inflation caused by the Russia, you know, Ukraine conflict, a lot of supply chain issues, prices have gone up, interest rates have gone up. Now, because they've increased interest rates really, really aggressively, they're worried that they'll be killing the economy. And they want to cut interest rates slowly enough that it'll grow the economy, but it'll still keep inflation within control. Yeah. Applying that to you know what's going on right now, it's that I think it's still too early to say um, the impact of the Middle Eastern crisis on, on inflation. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're in mid-October, the conflict has, has, you know, started, you know, less than a week. We've seen the oil prices go up, you know, from early $80 to late $80, early $90. We've seen gas prices go up 20 30% in the last, you know, um, few weeks. So I think 
It all depends on if this conflict escalates or remains as is. If it remains as is and subsides, then I think there's, there's more chances that the interest rate will go down than it will go up. However, if the conflict escalates, and this becomes not just a conflict between two, um, two territories, but it becomes a regional conflict, and there are multiple countries involved, I would suspect the commodity prices go up, which will increase inflation, which will increase um, interest rates, and will have a negative impact on share prices. Does that, hopefully, I'll walk you through every single step and, and see how that, how that plays out. But yeah, I, I think it, it's one thing to know that historically that the, the Israel-Palestine conflict has not had a long-term impact on oil prices, yeah. given those two territories don't produce you know, too much oil relative to Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Russia and the Baltic states. Yeah, I guess that's what's interesting about following the trends within commodities markets, um, inflation and capital markets, because it's either going to be a hit or a miss, but you kind of wouldn't know until like literally a few months or even a couple of like a few weeks down the line. Yeah, I, I think we've got to see how this plays out. I think one other thing to, to note about the consequences of inflation is that it disproportionately, you know, impacts lower socioeconomic folks, you yeah. know, like if the price of bread goes up, two dollars that two dollar increase would be a bigger percentage for someone earning you know fifty thousand dollars compared to earning two hundred thousand dollars so inflation disproportionately affects you know lower socioeconomic you know folks and so reserve bank governors um and policymakers have to think very carefully about increasing interest (laughs) rates knowing that doing so might further exacerbate the impact it has on you know, lower economic folks disproportionately. And so there's a fine balance between, you know, achieving some, you know, kind of economic equality in the market versus keeping inflation in control. And that's a very difficult, you know, balance to, to walk. Um, but yeah, that's another consideration to think about. I, you know, for, for folks listening to this, I would watch a couple of things very closely. Yeah. One, I would, you know, see if, the conflict escalates, particularly if it escalates to oil-producing countries, you know, Iran, um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, number one. Number two, I would pay close attention to the oil price uh, and the LNG price um, to see the impact there. Um, and then number three, see how it impacts core inflation when, when those um, numbers get uh, released. But, you know, all of these financial you know, implications are secondary to the the human tragedy that's happening right now, right? Like, you know, even talking about this feels, you know, you know, feels like we we are in a very privileged position to be, you know, where we are in Australia, you know, to to be able to even talk about this. So, yeah, notwithstanding sort of the the human sort of tragedy and toll, I I think it's important to keep in mind that that's that's the real crisis happening and and the, the impact on capital markets is very much secondary. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, once again, thank you for that. Um, I'm sure our listeners were able to get an overall picture, I'd say, because we managed to touch upon uh, three key different aspects that could potentially get affected by this overall, which I'd say is also three of the most important things that especially market participants are very keen on um, tracking. So thank you for that. But um, before we wrap up, we would not let you off um, without sharing some of your really important and valuable um, advice and tips on saving and investing for our dear listeners, those who are still at university. So um, let's share a bit of your experience on early stages into saving and and investing and why do you think it's um, essentially important to establish an early habit of investing like in your financial life? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is something I feel really, really passionate about. Yeah. You know, I think for, for folks that are in my classes um, in entrepreneurial finance or corporate finance decision making, you know how much I love talking about yeah. personal finance and, and empowering people to make better financial decisions. And maybe I'll tell you a bit of a story. So I, I really got into finance basically reading a book um, by Tim Ferriss um, called The 4-Hour Workweek. Yeah. 
I read that, and then slowly, you know, shortly thereafter, that I read another book called Rich Dad Poor Dad by um, Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. And, and those books, you know, they're not perfect by any means. And, and looking back now, there are many holes in in that book, but they were really good introduction to personal finance and and like an alternative way of thinking about personal finance. When you think about what we teach folks in schools, you know, we'll, we'll teach you chemistry, physics, English, math, history, geography, you know, but we won't teach you how to look after your own money. Yeah. Like no one teaches you that. No one teaches you like, how do you pick a term deposit account? How do you pick a credit card? What, you know, what questions to ask when you get a mortgage? Like no one teaches you that. And so I think there's a real, it, you know, real problem here in terms of financial literacy. And, you know, we, I teach a Bachelor of Commerce at Melbourne University, and I'm shocked by the number of people that have no idea on what to do with their own money, yeah. right? You know, they go work at really big companies advising CFOs on how to deal with investments and company strategy, but when it comes to themselves, like, what do I do, right? So that, that is a problem I'm trying to solve, and that's something I feel very passionate about. Yeah. I started my investment journey much like I think what other people um, in their early 20s do. We hear about a hot company from, let's say, a friend at a bar or, you know, we read the Fin Review and we hear about this exciting company and, you know, we gamble effectively, you know, $100 and we'll see what happens. My story was I I think I was on, um, there's a website called Hot Copper back in um like 10 years ago i'm not sure we've heard of it hotcover.com and, and they would discuss you know australian stocks and it, it's a terrible website i would not recommend mm-hmm. it. it it's it's terrible yeah. anyway so i heard you know there were people were talking about this like mining company in west africa i didn't even know what it was called but i thought yeah sounds interesting people people you know are enthusiastic people are buying so i need to be part of it so that's what i did I, I think I put down like maybe a couple of thousand dollars on it mm-hmm. and it quickly lost a lot of money. Um, I think I, I would check the price on my phone like every 90 seconds. Like every 90 seconds keeps going down. I'll check it again, keeps going down, yeah. check it again, keeps going down. And, and I'm like, well, when do I sell? You know, I, and, and this is real money, right? So, yeah, I, I remember my first investment, I, I think I lost like over 50%. On, on a West African mining company, and I thought this this is not working well. I didn't learn my lesson because I did it a couple more times. So mm-hmm. you know, I picked companies, I did it again and again, and I thought this is not working. So what changed for me is learning of two things. Number one, learning about ETFs. So for those of you listening that don't know what an ETF is, an ETF is a security that you can buy on you know. Uh, the Australian Stock Exchange or, um, you know, in the US or in Europe, it's, it's, it's just a security. And that security holds a basket of other companies yeah. based on a specific theme or, um, you know, strategy. So, for example, you can buy the S&P 500 ETF. That's just one security that holds the S&P 500 index <laughs> and you can track the index. <laughs> you can buy a ETF based on, let's say, crypto, you know, which, which will have a lot of crypto companies in an ETF. You can buy an ETF that's around biotech or healthcare that will just one security that holds a basket of other healthcare companies. So you're buying one com- you're buying one security, but it's diversified because it's got exposure to various companies. So yeah. I came across ETFs pretty early on and I you know I cannot recommend them highly <sighs> enough. Um, because they're diversified, you know, you can pick your theme, you can pick your strategy. That's number one. The second thing I, that really changed how I think about investing is what I call FIRE. You know, I'm, not, I'm sure, sure you've heard of the FIRE movement, F-I-R-E, the yeah. Financial Retired Early Movement. And, you know, it's quite an alternative way of thinking about finance. But, you know, I'm all about sort of making sure you have financial independence, um, you know, responsible financial goals and, and you know budgeting and saving all the boring things your parents tell you to do but you're like yeah you know what i'll i'll do it later so those are the key pillars that i I'd think about and i'm happy to go into that in a lot more detail yeah absolutely um let's touch upon the key principles of risk and return in in investing because um i'm sure you shared some of the 
safest and the least riskiest um, investment funds that especially students as like first time investors could go into. So um, touching upon on that, um, how should students balance their investment portfolios accordingly to balance the risk and the return? Yeah. So I think, first of all, you got to acknowledge that as students, you probably have a lot of expenses um, that are, you know, holidays, entertainment, restaurants. You know, you don't want to miss your friend's 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to miss that, you know, that break to Europe or, you know, going back home over the over the university holidays. So experiences come first. Um, I have a, a younger sister who's just graduated uni and I tell her to, you know, it's important to save, yes, but it's also important to enjoy life. Yeah. And so, you know, go on that holiday, you know, go, go to your friend's dinner, um, have a great time, go to that, you know, Taylor Swift concert you've always wanted to go to, um, which, which are really expensive, by the way. Mm-hmm. I had a look at the prices and I was, I was very shocked. Um, but It's now our movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. watch that instead, yeah. Yeah, um, but putting putting that to aside, you know, I think it's important to know that, you know, your, your average life expectancy is probably going to be around the 80s, you know, um, and, you know, knock on wood, maybe the 90s. And so assuming if you're listening to this, you're in your early to mid-20s, you've got about 50 years, you know, of working life ahead of you. 50 to 60 years of full-time employment ahead of you. And that's a long time. Yeah. What does that mean for your investing strategy? So number one, it means that you can take a little bit more risk early on. So I really would not recommend, you know, folks um, in their 20s to be investing in bonds because they just don't give you the return um, that you could probably expect in, in the share market, for example. So you can take on more risk. Number two, that's financial risk, but number two, you can take more risks, you know, in terms of your career. It's much easier to jump jobs and switch industries in early 20s and mid-20s than it is in your 40s. Um, And so taking that risk, you know, professionally might also yield better sort of uh, incomes down the track. Yeah. Three, I would think about starting investing early and start investing now. You know, Warren Buffett talks a lot about compounding. And I would highly recommend folks to you know, folks listening to, to read up on Berkshire Hathaway annual reports um, and, and just go on YouTube and listen to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, and all the principles they have. They've got some gold, uh, you know, and wisdom out there. One of the big messages they have is about compounding. And the, you know, like delaying investing by five years will have a material impact when you retire. So you might think, oh, you know, I'm listening to this, I'm in my early 20s, I'll do it in my mid-20s. Yeah. When you retire, that five-year decision will have a material impact on your your retirement. So start early. I don't care if you start small, but start now. Um, find an ETF um, and, and get started. And and most importantly, you know, start small. I think that's, that's responsible because... You, you will only learn from your own personal experience. And so start small. And so I remember we, you know, we had this chat the other day about ETFs and yeah. what ETFs should buy and how much should I put into it. You know, you can't go wrong by just buying the S&P 500 index. You really can't go wrong. A lot of full-time professional money managers try to beat the index and fail. These are really smart people that have been doing this for a very long time and they fail. The percentage of folks that consistently beat the S&P 500, like less than 10%. Yeah. These are people that are paid to do this. So my my recommendation, and, and just from my own experience, is, you know, you can't go wrong with just being diversified, you know, having an index, you know, and, and this is just general advice, you know, this is not, you know, um, specific to your own circumstances. And so you have to think about your own situation carefully. But you know, if you do have the means to save a bit of money aside from your, your grad job or your you know, um, your intern role, you know, put like 10% aside, buy, buy an ETF and just watch that grow over time. So those are the, some of the key principles. Typically what happens, um, at least what my friends have done is, you know, the early 20s, they'll save a bit of money, put yeah. it into an ETF and then go on a holiday, you know, go on their mate's birthday and enjoy life and you should do that. And then as you get into your mid to late 
20s, if you're early 30s, people look to buy a house. And so if you're looking to buy a house, that, that's a different question on, you know, where do I buy? How much do I need to borrow? And, you know, do I need 20% deposit? Or can I get away with less than that? That's a different strategies there. And, and so the whole, you know, going back a couple of steps, the whole FIRE movement, um, you know, is, is all about being able to be financially independent so you can work on what you want to, not because you're working, because you have to. And that is something that I hold really close to me. My parents are immigrants and they, they were working, you know, for 40, 50 years mm-hmm. um, because they had to, not because they wanted to necessarily. So that's a cycle that I think, you know, we, we should reconsider. Um, and that just gives you more options and flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. I got to add in there as well. Um, like our listeners who literally caught me on this and all that, like I could pretty much watch for all of the advice that's been shared because I was one of those fortunate students who were really inspired by sitting in one of your CFDM classes and it really pushed me to go into that pathway and really just give it a try because I mean why not? You're studying it after all. It's always um a bit of extra fun and spice to like pretty much just try out what you're studying in real life so um thank you so much for all of the valuable advice um you've shared with us and with that um we've actually come to the end of our final episode for this semester i'd like to again extend um my gratitude to you for coming on this episode it was on a very short notice uh but i'm sure you've given out some of the most important things that um, us as students and literally anyone who's listened to this should be aware of given some of the most um, detrimental finance crisis we are going on. And yeah, I thank you for coming along. No worries. It was a great chat and uh, I hope it, it helps uh, the folks listening. Yeah, absolutely. I can um, assure you that. And also thank you to our listeners for being such an interactive and um a great audience throughout this entire semester. We've had some great feedback over our our past podcasts and we hope you continue to um, stay tuned with us for next semester because we've got another set of interesting podcasts coming along. So enjoy the summer holidays and we'll see you guys next year. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bow Talks. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at Banking on Women. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you.